Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with a remarkable lady who has provided direction, hope, inspiration, and a gift to thousands of female and youth entrepreneurs from rural areas in Nigeria and across Africa. Born in Karlsruhe, Germany, to Nigerian parents, she found her purpose in life to be a catalyst for social change through focusing on social entrepreneurship, corporate sustainability and responsibility, and is a leading advocate on the bottom of the pyramid empowerment. As the founder and president of Growing Business Foundation since 1999, and the president of Rising Tide Africa, this esteemed lady is driven by learning and passionate about teaching. She has a PhD from Johann Wolfgang Goethe University in the area of ownership and management structures, with a focus on the global applicability of African models of corporate governance and sustainability. She is also an alumnus of Wharton Business School and is also executive programs in Inseed and Judge Business School. She speaks with passion, pride, humility, as she delivers powerful, inspiring, and emotionally connecting words of wisdom to encourage the next generation to be bold and make a difference in their life and the community around them. Ben and I feel very, very privileged to introduce and welcome you to our guest, Dr. Ndidi Noli Ndozian. Ndidi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Wow, what an amazing life you've had so far. Let's start from your early days. What was life like growing up in Karlsruhe, Germany? And what did you dream of doing when you grew up? Oh, I think my dreams probably started when we came to Nigeria. Um, so growing up in Germany, I moved to Nigeria when I was quite young. And I think the contrast between two different ecosystems. So the Germans are generally very efficient, very organized. And Nigeria is a much more cyclical, you could even say slightly more chaotically entrepreneurial city, Lagos. And so that contrast obviously makes a big impact, I think, on a young mind, reconciling a very structured, orderly approach to things and a much more creative, innovative um, approach to problem solving. So what I remember most early on is just wondering how one can harness the huge potential that exists here and put it to, well, in a way, what's happened in in many ways that that the world really looks at this country and, and sees its enormous potential, its huge economic power, and um, the journey is a long way yet. It's quite an incredible insight as a young person. And so, so when you were growing up at school, you know, what type of characteristics or what type of person were you? Did that change and evolve as you 
as you grew up and uh, into your working world? I think the biggest transformation that I experienced was um, I won a scholarship to go to the United World Colleges. And I was the only Nigerian among 360 students, and we were about 97 different nationalities. It was a very impressionable age between the ages of 16 and 19. And the focus of the UWCs is very much about you know, transforming the world or transforming the space in which you live and being an ambassador for your country, your continent, your people. And um, that debate, that constant debate and that constant engagement with many different opinions, many different cultures, um, many different perspectives on single um, ideological stances, which appear to be singular, but actually are completely plural, um, transformed my life um, forever. And it, it, it remains, I think, the reason why, you know, th- my greatest skill today is still the skill of synergy, of combining two different cultures. So my mother is a nationalized Nigerian, but she was actually, she's 100% German. Um, but she calls herself 100% Nigerian. And my father was 100% Nigerian, who was referred to as German engineering because he was fascinated by German engineering. And so growing up in that um, dual household um, and translating that into um, the UWC, very plural um environment or ecosystem has really influenced my perspective on on the way that I see people and the way I see cultures and the way that I work. Yeah, I've had quite a bit of experience working in international schools and one of those has become a United World College. It's an amazing concept and I think having those very diverse viewpoints and perspectives has a big impact on people's lives. I know being a teacher or you know, being involved there as a, as a sports coach as well, that it changed me. And so it, that's yeah. a great thing to start with at such an early age of your life is to get that experience yeah. and have a global sense on how things work. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was very fortunate as well because my older daughter graduated from a United World College um, three years ago. And so it was very interesting, you know, 20 odd years later to re-experience that setting as an adult and watch the transformation of young people being exposed to the fact that, you know, one way is not the only way. Yes. And actually a much healthier approach to the world is, is to consider the other side, um, whether that's, you know, top down, bottom up, or across boundaries, jurisdictions, sovereignties, cultures, languages, and, and how much richer that actually makes you in terms of your perspective. Yeah, so you, you've had an amazing impact on so many people's lives. What inspired you in 1999 to develop Growing Businesses Foundation? You know, it, it actually started, so my first job was working um, in a very large, um, actually it was a small firm, but it was right at the top of the pyramid. And it was lending to the blue chip companies, it was creating money markets, it was 
creating secondary markets for treasury bills. And I would, you know, I think my largest transaction at the time was was a huge transaction for, for Shell. And I remember that day um, realizing that no matter how many transactions I got involved in with the big companies, I would leave the office and, and head home every single day and the beggars on the street, um, some of whom I had adopted and was was kind of giving my little salary to, um, their lives would never change unless they had access to a little bit more capital and could do a little bit more to generate an income for themselves. And it occurred to me that that poverty wasn't so much um, the, 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 the lack of financial capital, which of course is a huge issue, um, but it was the lack of, and the loss of dignity and self-confidence. And, and that very often, you know, small amounts of money could completely transform a person's life and, and give them the opportunity to create real value where they were in, in their own way and from their own perspective. And that that was very different at different strata um, and levels of society. So that was something that was very deep in, in my own consciousness and, and something that I wanted to um, make a contribution towards. And um, my second job was then to set up an asset management division. Um, and in that privileged position, I met a lot of CEOs of large corporates operating in Nigeria, a lot of them multinationals, and they had very similar sentiments. And I was a member of something, of a network of those CEOs in my capacity as a young CEO of this asset management division of, of the company that I worked for. And because of my passion, for whatever reason, about nine different CEOs decided that they would back me in the creation of this thing called the Growing Businesses Foundation. And the notion was if, um, I remember the, the CEO of, of ExxonMobil, well, it was mobile at the time, who ate local chicken for the first time in, in his oil producing area. And his challenge was, indeed, honestly, if you can help us build sustainable local economies by investing in the small businesses and small producers around where we operate, and we can honor those businesses by buying from them and considering them a part of our value chain and our supply chain, whether that's as small as the kitchen or whether it's more sophisticated in terms of you know, um, the work that we do, then then feel that we would have made a sustainable impact. The CEO of an oil company, well before the Niger Delta crisis um, um, started, essentially as part of this this movement or, or this this ideal that I had of of building sustainable local economies around big businesses. Because, okay, let me take a step back. In a country like Nigeria, in many African countries, um, the big businesses operate quite independently of the informal sector. There's no real connection between the big firms and, and what happens in the communities around them. And when there is a connection, it tends to be social charity. And so the idea was to build businesses around big business or big industry and manufacturing that has a connect between 
the businesses of small people and the businesses of big people. The best example of that is perhaps the program that the Growing Businesses Foundation runs with Unilever, um, where it contributes about 4% of revenues Mm -hmm. through about 2,500 women, rural women who didn't have jobs, who um, very often were unemployed and widowed or um, generally disenfranchised. And and they have become part of the supply chain of a large business. So that for both sides, it's a win-win. It's not a charity. It is sustainable and scalable because as the women's businesses grow, Unilever's business grows. So what I was saying earlier was that the vision of sustainable economic development led by socially responsible businesses was for us a a paradigm shift in the way that big business looked at their social responsibility because they were more impact oriented. It's so simple, but as you said, it it took, you know, it had to take quite a big paradigm shift. Um, It's quite an incredible um, I suppose ecosystem to to evolve, and it's you know take your hats off. I suppose to Mo- Exxon Mobil who had the foresight to go. You know, look, we can make a big difference to a lot of people here, and really involve them in what we're doing by surrounding them in as part of our um, you know our system. It it what's fascinating is it's the leadership that makes the difference. Um, what I found has been the greatest challenge working with multinationals is that when the CEO changes, very often that thinking of the synergy between them and their surrounding host communities doesn't necessarily become a part of the corporate culture of the organization. So such thinking moves with the, the leader in question. So moving away from ExxonMobil and into Unilever, what we tried to do there was to actually build it into the supply chain. So now when you think of the 2,500 women that are contributing to sales of Unilever, you are actually thinking, gosh, if I quit and and, and leave those 2,500 women, I'm losing 4% of my revenue. Or you're asking yourself, right, how do I increase the number of women because I'm spending less money on marketing because they're brand ambassadors that are just, you can't begin to compare how much more effective uh, 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 a woman in a village who believes in a brand, who believes in the value of a brand can be than a billboard or any other kind of social media marketing. Um, I mean, we did a similar project with um, MTN, which was at the time the largest mobile telecom operator in in 2004, where we rolled out approximately 10,000 women. And some of these women, in turn, one woman ended up empowering 15,000 women on her own, well, with our support. But the point is one woman translated into giving loans and training and economic empowerment programs to 15,000 women in her jurisdiction, including a continuum into the Unilever program. So it's just an incredible experience when you're able to empower women to um, take charge of their destinies and, and make a contribution to society and to the economy. 
So, so I mean, one of the first catchphrases that we had at the Growing Businesses Foundation in our early conferences was investing in the poor. I think the first paradigm shift was don't give charity to the poor. Don't look at the poor as people who need, quote unquote, help. Look at them as potential, economic potential, socioeconomic potential, and invest because, you know, and, and what we've proven time and time again, and I think microfinance, um, which is which is one of the tools that we use with its repayment rates of 98%, 99% on loans when properly administered, also underlined this fact that you can invest in the poor. And, and, and again, underlined the fact that the most important thing is human dignity. Yes. And um, particularly to invest in this part of the world in women. Yeah, it's incredible. And so pioneering is a real big part of your DNA. So, you know, you're talking about the rollout of the, through the mobile network. Was that the Rural Telephone Project? Yes, it was the Rural Telephone Project. Yes, it was. Okay, excellent. And and so, you, you know, I think in 2001, you had a local village man who you supported um, with a 1 million Nigerian loan. And he empowered a whole lot of females in the area. What was that project about? Oh, that was incredible. So that was that's that's an incredible guy, actually. And and you know, when we run the Rising Tide Africa initiative, which I'll talk about in a minute, one of the things I point out is that very often in my two decades of working in this space, men have sometimes been much more impactful and um, transformational in changing women's lives than women have. So this gentleman um, who used to work for a microfinance bank wanted to empower women in his village. And I met him and he told me his story and I took him to my board. And I, I honestly don't remember what it was about him but we gave him his first 1 million Naira loan. And I said to my board, if he doesn't repay it, I will take personal liability for this loan. Now, this gentleman has grown um, his loan portfolio to about, I think right now it's edging towards 20 billion Naira. And um, he's empowered upward of 500,000 women. He works with youth in agriculture. He is part of the um, Unilever program that we run. Um, his repayment rates are still at 98%. Um, he runs and owns a microfinance bank, which we took a small equity stake in. He is just a transformational leader, and he supports about 95% of his um, entrepreneurs that he supports are women. Um, and he's also started working very actively with youth. Um, I, I feel, and it, it's funny because what I realized is that he's a social entrepreneur. And what I, I was able to do in that situation and a few others, but he, he's the one who impresses me the most, was recognize the potential of a social entrepreneur. And um, it, it, it inspired me to begin making early stage investments simply because Early stage investments are also more connected with building proper structures and proper governance and bringing in the right kind of capital and paying a little bit more attention to the books and the scalability and replicability of a business beyond a local jurisdiction or a national um, um, boundary to begin to look pan-African. 
And, and that's the kind of business that Africa needs right now. Businesses that have a multiplier effect, that act as catalysts for change, and that begin to empower many other businesses. And so, you know, rather than, than make direct investments in um, hundreds of thousands of women, if you can empower a social entrepreneur or 10 social entrepreneurs, each of whom can impact 500,000, then you very easily get to the volume of 5 million, which is what really captures my attention simply because I live in a country where the population is supposedly at 200 million with a very, very high demographic in an economy and and a shared value system that is rapidly changing where you can no longer take jobs for granted. And you really have to think outside of the box to um, engage, embrace and um, unleash the power and the imagination and the creativity of our millennials to transform this continent because nobody's going to do it. We have to. It's a great insight. And, you know, so we're kind of getting that feel here where everything is very community driven from the bottom up in these type of countries. Is that correct? There is a very large informal sector. So when you um, run the numbers, you find that formerly employed in an economy like Nigeria, um, where you get statistics from the National Bureau of Statistics, less than 20% of the people of the population in the country are formally employed. So um, 80% of your population are operating in the informal sector, not very structured. Um, and in order to understand that marketplace, you really have to think bottom up. You have to think um, um, market as opposed to a more structured, formal system. And so, yes, bottom-up actually operates um, very effectively, especially because, unfortunately, we still have um, over 60% of our population living well below standards um, at which they should. We still don't have a social security infrastructure that is formally structured to support the population. So a lot of that support comes through informal means, comes through extended family systems, which are fast falling away. Um, So one of our biggest challenges, in my view, is connecting the formal with the informal and tapping into the value systems, the traditional value systems, the ethics, the beliefs of people, what drives people, what makes them passionate and connecting that to a more formal economy. That's really the only way, in my view, that you can kickstart and truly realize the potential of our country, Nigeria, and many other African countries. So to expand that a bit more, so Africa is really a, a continent on the rise, and with regards to rising tide Africa, you're really going to cross borders here and looking at scalability and also sustainable economic growth. What, what is the purpose of Rising Tide Africa and what can we expect in the future? Well, the idea behind Rising Tide Africa, so a few of us as women have been involved with what is largely a male, um, a male community of early stage investors who are taking risks in businesses that obviously have high risk but also high potential. Um, mentoring, um, supporting, leveraging our networks to help those businesses grow. 
um, especially high-impact businesses that can um, transform economies or, or societies. And um, the idea behind Rising Tide Africa was to convene women and allow women to put together small amounts of capital. So um, on average, $10,000 and pool that capital and make viable investments um, that not only generate return for the women, but also are impact investments that transform the economies and societies in which they operate. Um, the reason why it's Rising Tide Africa is because it, it spans essentially deal leaders. So we're just finalizing the choice of our deal leaders um, across different African countries because we find that early stage investing is best when you're local, um, when you're hands-on with the businesses, when you can support as an advisory board with accessing to them to capital and, and to the right networks and business opportunities, when you can consistently advise on strategy and on business development, and when you can provide additional capital or at least convene other investors to put in additional capital when that business is ready to grow. Um, so it's not so much the capital as it is really taking the expertise of many professional women and deploying that towards growing businesses um, that have the potential to scale. Um, the idea was to also ensure that we are bringing on board women who typically would never make that kind of investment and providing them the opportunity to learn by doing. So you're making an investment with other women who are um, much more qualified and, and have exited a number of deals perhaps, and have the um, knowledge base to recognize good deals, to um, um, make the right level of investments and follow through investments um, or top-up investments and um, guide those businesses to succeed and possibly even to exit at the appropriate time. So the network of women investing, it's um, investing in businesses that also potentially impact women, but not exclusively so. So it's a continual, and it's learning by doing. Yeah, sure. So it's a continually evolving process of catalysm um, happening and, and teaching and empowering that just keeps going and going. And it's it's quite incredible. It is. I, I mean, this is not the official reason, but my personal passion um, um, for this arises from from watching many male networks. So whether you find those male networks in the golf courses or, you know, um, in boardrooms, which are predominantly male, I sit on a few boards where I am the only female and, and watching how male friendships evolve, men mentor each other and they understand how to back each other and they understand how to pull each other up. It's almost as if it's a skill that we haven't learned as women. We don't necessarily grow up playing football and beating each other on the field and then coming off and having a beer. So that ability of women to work together and, and to mentor each other and to invest in other female businesses and to be able to go to a woman for the support that you require, um, um, it, it's something that's always fascinated me. And so Rising Tide Africa gives me an opportunity to explore that. And I love it. I think it's, you, you bring up a really important kind of concept there around understanding strengths. So you understand the strengths of what males can do and generally what females do. And you're trying to take some of those characteristics from the males 
and incorporate that into empowering the woman to take on some of those um, those important aspects of mentoring and and pushing each other to produce better performance absolutely i think also because yes the world has changed a lot um there are no longer the kinds of ceilings um in place at least i don't see that many and we're no longer socialized um as much to kind of grow up and become good mothers or good wives but we're actually more likely as young women to be propelled to be the best selves that we can be as well as becoming you know mothers or wives or whatever we choose to be whereas men have always been socialized to in this part of the world at least as as it being their duty to become breadwinners and you become a breadwinner by pursuing a career and being um, um capital generation focused which actually gives you financial independence and financial dignity um and, and women are just not socialized that way um we are more socialized as as individuals and and we have to be perfect and 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 that creates a, a very different um ecosystem and and sometimes also a lot of um self doubt and less self questioning what we wanted to create was a safe space where you know we can ask questions and there's no foolish question we can learn because we want to know more and it's okay not to know as much already um so it is really is that safe space and i wouldn't even i mean we have on our board a, a guy so i invented this term called honorary women to the for the guys who i just thought were were so cool and and so bigger than everything and and when i look at many women i, I see them as as bigger than than everything but but less less unafraid to dare um um and sometimes less confident than they could be and i just think that we're losing so much especially this part of the world if we don't unleash that power if we don't push people to be their best selves and that actually applies both to men and women it's just that women seem to need that push a, li- a little bit more this part of the world at the moment okay so you speak about having the ability to reach inside and finding a a feeling that's right. What does this mean and how does that relate to your success? Um, You know, when when you ask me, I mean, the definition of success, what is success? I, I, I see, I don't think we ever get to the point where it's enough which is in a way it's 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 a bit of a problem because actually every moment is enough and so my enough are my two daughters and knowing that you know i i know that the world is their oyster and yet they they struggle but that's my biggest enough it's it's my it's my most profound enough and i'm i'm eternally grateful that i do have two daughters although i would probably be just as happy if i had two sons. <laughs> um, now, success, I think, is relative. So when you're involved in issues like sustainable development or economic empowerment or sustainability, every day there are new challenges to overcome. Every day, and the more that you know, the more you realize needs to be done. So you have to 
um, you have to learn to to be satisfied with with little victories. And and one of the stories that um, impacted me the most and and actually defines for me what success is is this story of a little girl on the beach with a, a, a beachfront that is swamped with starfish um, that need to get back into the water. And it's her taking each little starfish and throwing it back, back in the water. And an adult questioning what she's doing and saying to her, are you crazy? You're, you're never going to be able to clean all of this up. And the little girl picking up the next starfish and, and looking at the starfish intently and saying, this one's going to survive. And carrying on with that level of devotion and passion that I imagine everybody would be obliged to help. And if you can then create a movement where everybody decides that they're going to do their little bit, that's where transformation really happens. So I've learned that my success is really in inspiring others um, to, to do more, to, to be more. And that's, that, that's a very different definition of, of success because it, it's vicarious, but it works for me. It works very, very well for me. Okay, so I'm going to read a quote from one of your inspirational talks when enlightening people about trusting what you have before you. Perfect is the enemy of good. Think, feel, and then move. If you strive for perfection, you'll never get started. This is really, really, really powerful and so important for potential entrepreneurs to grasp. So what pieces of advice would you give to people wanting to start their own business? You've got to love what you do. Um, and when you're able and willing to do it, even if nobody's looking, even if nobody's going to pay you for it, um, then what happens is you gain an, an inner strength and momentum to sustain. And, and it gives you, it gives you the ability to, to tap into that inner intuitive knowing because to, to be great at business, it's actually not the thinking or the feeling, it's the knowing. And when you look at great people, um, whether that's Jobs or, or Aliko Dangote, there, there's a certain humble, quiet confidence that keeps them going. And, and when they look back, They'll tell you the stories of connecting the dots, but they never did it because they wanted to be great. They never did it really because they wanted to be successful. They're driven by a different energy that is just unrelenting and and it is so deep um, um, that that it's like a fire that just cannot be put out. Um, but you have to put all of that, you have to, to, to wrap all of that with practical steps. You've got to get your numbers right. You've got to analyze your numbers and, and build a business case because a good idea is just not good enough. It has to make economic sense. You've got to have the right governance structures in place. Make sure you have an advisory board that has the skills that you don't have because you will never have all the skills and that help you um, block out your blind spots. You've got to choose people who can tell you the hard, brutal truth, even when you can't tell it to yourself and, and that make you go back and, and think and rethink a strategy or an approach you're taking. You've got to learn how to listen. 
you've really got to learn how to listen and and look and 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 see beyond what is obvious but you must never ever ever lose that connection to your deep inner gut because you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing where you're supposed to be going and where you want to be at any given point in time and, and so you also i suppose you can't be afraid of failure and and you've got to be willing to be vulnerable those are actually the two most powerful words absolutely you've actually got to embrace failure but i mean there's so many stories um about successful people who i think the biggest thing is how you deal with failure if you allow failure to shake you down so badly that you're unable to learn from it you cannot grow because you will live your life looking backwards and you will live your life with regret in german there's a there's a phrase that says die reue ist ein hinkender bote er kommt langsam aber gewiss so if you live your life with regrets it may be slow to catch up but it definitely will and it will singularly hamper and and hamstring you you've got to be able to embrace your failures learn from them and move forward and the the concept of vulnerability i suppose that's a bit like um magic happens outside of the comfort zone everything that ever um becomes something great happens when you you're not comfortable when you you're you're not sure that there's a part of you if you're comfortable we had a masterclass one of the rising tide masterclasses and we had the head of venture capital for the IFC um lead that masterclass and the most fascinating thing that he said was i never make an investment when i'm 100% comfortable i only invest when i feel outside of my comfort zone when i'm uncertain when i'm vulnerable then i know i'm on the right path wow it's a great insight and you know i think that's a good way to approach it i was speaking with a friend recently and she one of her terms she said was the enemy to a great life is a good one so that i suppose that encompasses yes. that whole aspect of you need to feel a little bit uncomfortable you've got to feel unsure otherwise you're not going to challenge yourself and it's going to be difficult to become successful in whatever success means to you it's true it's true it's it's interesting because um i just remembered that um when i was when i was setting up the growing businesses foundation i i remember that i got to a point about 6 months in where i had quit my job i didn't have a salary and i hadn't raised the capital that i needed to get the show off the ground and i said to myself okay i'm going to go to this one last person who had actually sponsored a part of my education and who knew me quite well and i'm going to explain why this is so important to me and i am sure that i'm going to get the backing i need and so i went off to this meeting very confident and i said you know i believe so much in this that i'm willing to die for it and he turned around and he said to me two things um one is he said indeed you must never be willing to die for anything um you must give it your best shot and if it fails you must walk away from it like you never even cared um i thought that was very profound it's never left me and the second thing he said to me was 
I'm sorry, but I have other priorities right now. I think you've made a bad career move, leaving your very senior position as the head of asset management and looking at microfinance. This is not going to go anywhere. Go back and go back to your job. And so I left that meeting. I was dazed. I was dented. I was, I can't describe how I felt. Um, but I, I dug deep within and I realized in that situation, I realized that the only thing I was afraid of was failing. I hadn't given it my best shot because I was afraid about not raising enough capital, about not being able to do what I set out to do. I was being driven by fears. And once I realized that, it took two months and we'd raised $450,000 in grants. Wow. Two months. And all it was was this realization that what was holding me back was my fear of failure. And once I faced that and let it go, everything became possible. Suddenly all the doors opened and everything happened. And here we are 20 years later and the nonprofit is still running. And it doesn't have any huge financiers. It, I'm not a super wealthy person that can endow my foundation. Um, a lot of the people that sat on my board initially have gone ahead to set up their own billion dollar foundations. Um, but we're still here. And we're still doing what I consider to be very important work um, at the bottom of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. You've got to not just... Um, consider failure a learning experience, you've actually got to embrace it. And then what it does is it it, it liberates you. And, and embracing failure is actually admitting your own imperfection, your own weaknesses, your own vulnerability. And in so doing, strangely, you strengthen yourself, you empower yourself, you enable yourself, and you suddenly realize, hey, I don't have to be perfect why do I think I need to be perfect in the first place? I don't even have to get this done. Maybe there's another way to do this. It doesn't have to be my way, which is the reason why I I am fascinated by the idea of enabling other people because I learn so much from from not trying to to preach or to show, but rather from from listening and and reflecting people's strengths to themselves. There is this phrase that says, you know, our greatest fear is actually the greatness that we have within ourselves. Uh, and and so my greatest gift is sometimes, especially with women, to see that light that, that they're afraid to let shine. And, and the greatest gift is, is when somebody comes back to you and says, you know, I took that job. Or I accepted that promotion or I resigned from that job and I set up my own business. Thank you very much for saying what you said. I don't know what those what you said's are, but we need more of that, that, that much I know. It's, it's that building that self-confidence in people to go out and make something of what they've got. It seems that that really Absolutely. resonates with what you're saying. So absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like what 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 you're doing. 
you wake up every morning at four or five o'clock. Great people wake up at four or five o'clock. You're reaching out to people all over the world to listen to their stories and tell their stories. I suppose I could turn this interview on you and ask you exactly the same questions and it would be an incredible and fascinating story. And you're driven by a vision and a passion and a, a dream um, um, that, that, that makes you do what you do. I, I find things like that fascinating. Yeah, very curious. It's a curious mind. And I think from that, obviously you recently in 2016 went to the Wharton School of Business Advanced Management Program with someone I, I know quite well. What was that experience like? And, you know, you're working with some people that are incredibly not so much gifted but have a lot of forethought and are very open to changing the way things happen in the world. So the AMP experience with Mark, your friend, was, and Mark is incredible, by the way. Um, it definitely is. Was, yeah, um, it was, it was the closest that I've come to the United World College experience. It was fascinating that in six weeks you could actually open up people's vulnerabilities so intensely. And, and watch them grow from their ability to be humble and, and honest. Um, I think that as we become more and more sophisticated and good at what we do, and as we climb higher and higher up the hierarchy, there are very few people who can tell us the plain truth. So being among a set of peers where you were not just in the classroom, but you were also you know, doing fire drills or, or playing silly games or, you know, making films um, together just exposed you in, in ways that you're not used to anymore. It took you back to playing in the playground, which was actually not such a game after all. The playground is quite equivalent to the workplace <laughs> in many places. Um, and, and that was, that was Phenomenal. I, I went into um, the AMP as I had just taken up the, the role. I didn't, I'd made an investment in a startup and I was the CEO of that startup and I had um, done a course at Wharton. And then I had handed over that startup to the actual CEO we'd chosen and I was, I was um, exploring what to do next. And I sent myself to Wharton because I wanted to challenge myself. I think I was the only self-employed person in the room. I think maybe there were two of us. Um, we were five women and 24 men, I think. Um, and I came out of that course realizing one that I was a much stronger personality than I believed, not just in a local setting, but in a global setting. And I realized also, or I thought I realized that I didn't want to be a number one. I wanted to be a number two position in, in a large firm because I wanted to know whether I could create the kind of impact I believed should happen in the world faster. Um, simply because I could leverage the muscle of a large 
entity. Um, and that, that was what I came out of Wharton thinking. This is what I want to do next. I, I want to become a, a strong number two in, in a very large company and really push impact. Um, and I'm on that journey now. Um, I'm on that journey right now. That's great. It's good to hear. So do you have any rituals or habits that you do each day to ensure that you be the best version of yourself? <laughs> this is actually a month where um, this is my, my discipline month um, where I, I think very often people think of discipline as a, as a punishment. It's actually gotten a very bad name for itself. Um, whereas actually it's the, it's the greatest gift you can give to yourself because one of the things that happens is if you have a designated period of the day, which is dedicated to something that you love, um, or more importantly, dedicated to yourself in that window of time is where, again, magic happens. That's where your inspiration comes from. And, and that could be, you know, waking up in the morning and going walking or jogging, if that's what you like to do. It could be just um, journaling for, for an hour. It could be um, meditating. Um, I find that, that that routine or that discipline of creating time for, for you is is one of the things that we neglect the most and that we need the most. I think that's a very consistent theme with the people we're speaking with. A lot of the top CEOs and leaders is, is that they find their own time for themselves. And as you say, it's that reflection time, whether it be the meditation or say for someone like myself, when I go swimming, that's my meditation time. That's where mm-hmm. I, my thoughts flow. That's where mm-hmm. my creativity comes out. And that's where I get to, really bring up, I suppose, the best in myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, swimming's great. Swimming really is great. Okay, so great conversation so far. So we're, near, we're getting close to the end, and uh, I'm very conscious of your time. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Hmm. I went paintballing with my daughter. <laughs> that was fun. Um, I didn't realize how competitive I was. Um, yeah, and how daring I was, but, but that was wonderful. Um, I went last Sunday, actually, this is not a wonderful story. Um, we were at the beach and a seven year old kid disappeared and, um, the, it was a new beach. I hadn't been to that beach in about six or seven years. Um, the beach I normally go to has a little fisherman who has no boat and he just walks into the water and throws his net out and tries to catch fish. And so I had a routine every Sunday where I would go fishing with him. So I learned how to fish with his little local fishing net and whatever fish we caught, I would buy from him at a much higher price. And then I would have the pleasure of releasing the fish back into the water, which gave me a huge amount of joy. Um, And so last Sunday, for the first time, I went out with a fisher boat and with fishermen because we had no other resources to try to find this seven-year-old boy who may have disappeared into the water. 
Um, it was a very calm beach. Um, it's possible that he just ran away back to the village, but he was a villager. And so I hopped on the boat with these fishermen who on the first round kind of looked at me like I was crazy and found me a nuisance. But they very quickly learned that I had been well-trained by my little local fisherman. And so we went out two or three times casting the net out. But it was a very depressing experience because we didn't find um we didn't find the boy. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe it was an exhilarating experience because maybe he was just running in the fields and had run back to the village because he got hungry. Um, so that was a first. I'd never been on a local fisher boat before with a bunch of fishermen um, trying to, 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 to fish using local fishing nets. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, I adopted a squirrel stray cat. Um, I went to an ATM machine. This was 10 days ago. Um, and there was a little cat there and she looked hungry. And so I bought her some food, some tinned fish, and she was very purry. And so she walked with me to the car and hopped in. <laughs> and so I took her home because she had a really bad cough, sounded like pneumonia. And so I took her to the vet. We've cured her cough now. And... Um, I don't think she's going anywhere anymore. I think she's here. <laughs> you found a new friend. <laughs> yeah, so I adopted a stray cat. There you go. Mm. I think that's enough. <laughs> so what health and wellness initiatives do you encourage with the people you work with or empower? Um, what health and wellness initiatives do I... You know, to be honest, I don't think I've been very good about that i i um i think the only thing that i have encouraged in the health and wellness space is i notice when people are unhappy and i just don't let it pass me by so i can read when someone's not all right and so it's never business as usual i will always stop absolutely everything and talk about it um, there are times when people don't want to talk about it, but then, you know, what you can do is you can give them the space to go off and, and do what they need to do to, to get back into a good space. I think that's very important. I think it's, I, I, I don't think that there is any job or any work or anything that, that is more important than our own personal well-being. And so I like to think that the people that I work with know that, you know, it's it's an open space and um, I know that they can only be productive when they are um, inwardly um, content. And, and I know also the fact that they know that they have that liberty means that they always give their very, very best. Um, I love working with interns. Um because they're young and they're malleable and 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 they're open to learn and they have chirpy ideas and they don't recognize boundaries and they don't they challenge every hierarchy and and they 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 dream and and they do things differently and and I think that's the other thing I do just try to encourage that and I find that bringing millennials into the team actually forces people outside of their comfort zones um, and, and it makes everybody work a lot better. So it's really about bringing yourself into work and finding what you love to do, because that allows you to be 
who you are and, and really unleash and, and be the best possible self. Yeah, I, look, I enjoy working with interns and I've also made, you know, really worked hard with our board over the last four years here to make sure that we've always got one or two people on the board that are under the age of 30 and, and even under the age of 25 where possible. And just that having that different perspective. And as you said, mm-hmm. they, they like to challenge you. They like to step outside the norms of how everything's done, which I think is really important for growth and development mm-hmm. long-term. And we've really seen some, uh, some huge gains from that in the way our organization has grown and developed over the last couple of years. So one last uh, final question. Who has made the greatest impact on your career and why? My children, my daughters. Um, I've gone through the different iterations of my career, partly because so I, the period of time when I worked independently and, and wasn't working for anyone and was creating new businesses, so whether it was the investment business or the strategy consulting business or um, the foundation, of course, it was because I I was trying to balance having my time uh, and yet creating value in a space where I felt I could make a difference. And um, right now, the the decision, for example, to go back to university and um, take a, a, a formal job in a large organization is partly because that's the part or that's the space um, that my daughters now occupy. They're both in university and they are doing a lot of internships and they're asking different questions. And so what they do is they keep me young. They keep me thinking. They challenge me. Um, they're my my greatest um, critics. Um, they keep me vulnerable. They keep me honest. Um, I I I can't imagine. I can't imagine. That actually, there is no one that that has had as profound an influence on my career as as my daughters have. It's very special. I know that's a strange, that's a strange answer. I, I know. It's a great answer. Um, yeah. it's, it's an honest answer. It's, it's, so sometimes I introduce them as my mentors, sometimes, you know, as my, as my bosses, sometimes as my teachers and, and professors, because they play all of these, these roles, um, um, but it, it, it's, it's really been, I, I can't describe to you how profound that journey um, has been. And it, it keeps me constantly growing and, and reflecting and, and challenging myself also through their own evolution. And I think that as parents, if we have the um, courage, because it's not humility, it's actually courage, to become vulnerable towards these young people to whom we were once superheroes and and, and superstars and the all-knowing mother or father, Um, we then have the the privilege in exchange that we get to see a little bit more of their journey and we understand that next generation that much better because we, we, we are allowed into their thinking and we allow 
their thinking to influence our lives. And, and the world just looks very different. You know, in, in African culture, what it says is that life is cyclical. So so it, it, it explains the relationship between grandparents and, and grandchildren, which is a very, very powerful relationship, which many parents and their kids don't manage to achieve. It explains that relationship because they are the closest, the, the grandparents are the closest to moving into the next realm and the grandchildren have just come from, from that realm. So, so the yet unborn and, and the, and the, you know, spiritual realm are, are aligned. Uh, and a lot of this thing that we call um, intuition or inspiration or what great people will will say to you, it's not something they thought of. They, they very often people will tell you, actually, I, 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 it just happened. Um, I just knew that, that I needed to follow this path or I just trusted um, and, and, and followed a story. It, it's, it's that connect between the old and the new um, that if as parents we can connect with our children enough to allow that energy and that knowledge to flow, I think we're so much richer. I, I, I can't... I can't. I can't. Dis- I can't actually. I. I'm. I don't have words to describe what this feels like. I just know that it's the greatest gift that that I've been given. Indeed, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I. I think I've had a smile on my face the whole time, just really enjoying and soaking up your, your passion, your positive energy, the the beauty that comes out of you. I think we learn so much more when we teach and empower people then we're doing things ourselves and it really resonated through in our conversation today. And I'm sure you're going to continue to inspire many, many more people and, and make such an amazing difference to not just people, but the whole world and the social landscape that we live in. So thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Craig, the the smile is on my face because you've asked questions that have taken me down different lanes of things that I haven't thought about for a long time. And you have a gift and an art of drawing people out in a very, very casual and relaxed way. And I hope that I'll get the opportunity to turn the tables around and ask you as many questions at some point in the future. And if you don't offer it to me, I'll find a way of getting Mark to do so. How about that? I would enjoy that. And and obviously one day I'd like to meet you in person and and obviously get a chance to talk and meet with Ben as well because he's got you know, a, a beauty about him and a wonderful persona and some great insights into how people perform and, and living life as well. So he's got a great zest. Uh, so thank you and we'll let you, um, you go back to making a difference and working on your new projects. <laughs> Thanks very much, Craig. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.